Hey, Macrodosing listeners, you can find us every Tuesday and Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car on Carvana first. Oh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Welcome to Entertaining Clients, the only three-hour solo podcast. Uh, So if you haven't heard, I accidentally corrupted the video file for a macrodosing episode. And because of that, I now have to podcast for three hours straight solo. Uh, What happened was basically after a heated podcasting exchange between PFT and I, we basically were uh, competing in some of the uh, greatest feats of strength, that being holding our breath. Because of that, uh, he won two to one. Subsequently, we are now tied two two in breath holding competitions. Uh, but I was walking out the door, and when I was trying to admit defeat, I hit a switch, which I thought turned on the microphone, but instead. It turned off the cameras, which corrupted the wide and close-in angles of the video cameras, corrupting the video file. Uh, This was a very large consequence to a very small action of hitting a button. Um, Probably just exposed a weakness in our recording capabilities. But because of that, I now am recording a three-hour podcast that would have replaced the podcast if all of it had been deleted. So understandable, three-hour podcast. Uh, This is being recorded through uh, OBS. There's a lot of visuals. If you're listening on Spotify, I actually would recommend that you go to YouTube because we are going to be looking into some pretty crazy stuff. Um, A couple of topics off the top of my head that we're going to be discussing is the Tartarian Empire, which is a pretty interesting one. It's a conspiracy theory. We're actually, I'm going to take advantage of this time to really dig deep into some of these conspiracy theories that we don't really talk about on the podcast because PFT and Arians sometimes get too, you know, buttoned up and tight knit for us to get into it. So the Tartarian Empire, erased history, Antarctic Nazis. That's something that we never talked about. The Vegas shooting, how I wanted to do it. Um, Maybe some of the uh, history behind uh, certain interesting topics. Weird Bible passages, Moby Dick. Um, And then we have a bunch of requested topics. Uh, But first, I want to thank the guys who helped uncorrupt the files um, and helped get the macrodosing YouTube back online. Uh, shout out Tech Guy Andrew, Chico Technico. This is him on Twitter. If you can't see, we are going to zoom. Um, but his Twitter, if you can see, Tech Guy Andrew on Twitter, shout him out. Huge asset. Honestly, such an unsung hero in the production of Barstool Sports. 
uh, Steve Kultzo, Steve underscore Kultzo, K-U-L-T-Z-O-W on Twitter. Stanko, Stanko 99 absolute beast who's helping get everything back online. And lastly, Stefan Duran on Twitter, Stefan Duran, who is just at Stefan Duran, also helped get it back. He actually put in a lot of the leg room, a lot of the leg work, trying to get the two hours and 51 minutes of video realigned with audio. Um, so with that, uh, let's, we're also joined by the Billy's List Chats. And we are going to ask them how the audio is, and we're going to get going. So uh, we are five minutes into a three-hour podcast. Uh, this episode of Entertaining Clients is brought to you by PFT Commenter. PFT Commenter, the boss who wants the best for you and uses your shortcomings and uh, difficulties and tries to make you better in every way and tries to make you learn valuable lessons out of your punishments. And this is one of those. Um, honestly, Bill Burr, he's a guy who does solo podcasts. And this is honestly a great way to work in your podcasting, to break it in. Uh, if you can podcast by yourself for three hours, you can podcast with anyone forever. Um, this might turn into a experiment that causes me to go insane by talking to myself for three hours, but hopefully... We can sort it out. Um, moving on. So let's see. First off, let's get into the Tartarian Empire. What is it? I, we're all going to be learning together. And that's the beauty of this. I've heard about this. Tartaria, not sure what it is. Let's you know get a little video. Is history's forgotten Tartarian Empire real or just a hoax? What is the truth about Tartaria? Let's check it out. Hi, I'm Alex. So that is an ad that we are not giving free ads to, and skip the video. Okay, things I learned last night. That was a clickbait. So this is getting off to a swell start, but we're just going to check out Tartarian theory. On Wikipedia. Tartary. Huh. Tartary is a blanket term used in Western Europe, Europe literature and cartography for vast parts of Asia bounded by the Caspian Sea, Ural Mountains, the Pacific Oceans, and the northern borders of China, India, and Persia at this time when this region was largely unknown to European geographers. Hmm. So the theory of great Tartaria is a suppressed lost land or civilization originated in Russia with aspects first appearing in Anatoly Fomenko's new chronology and then popularized by the racial occult history by Nikolai Lavosho. Okay, let's hope this isn't something racist. Uh, a Russia pseudoscience known for its nationalism. Tartaria is presented as the real name for Russia, which was maliciously ignored by the West. So this started in Russia. The Russian Geographical Society's debunked the conspiracy theory is an extremist fantasy and far from denying the existence of the term has used the opportunity to share numerous maps of Tartary in its collection. So who knows what exactly is happening? Um, 
I think I just realized. Huh. Okay. So the theory states is that a lot of the older structures that were built in the 18th and 19th century are actually not built then, but by an ancient advanced civilization. So they claim that a lot of these photos like this wasn't actually built at the times they were. Hong Kong, everywhere across history, was not technically built when it was said to be. So this is kind of one of those things I think evolved from uh, uh, biases, confirmation bias especially, because they never saw it built. They can't confirm it was built then. Huh. A lot of this also has to do with this idea that tart, there's a hidden history of magical humans that were, uh, that history was erased. And that's something else that's pretty popular within this theory. Hmm. So, interesting. Now, guys, thank you for being here once again. We are going on a solo mission. So here we have the Reddit post where we have tons of topics we can explore on the whole idea. But now we're going to head to YouTube to check out some of this Tartarian conspiracy. Tartaria explained it in three minutes. Let's see what this is. And I'm going to stop the video so that we can all yeah, can we get sort the auto of insurance policy? discuss what's going on. Okay. We got Russian women singing. Okay, we got Russian singing. Let's see what's going on. We're looking at a large construct up a mountain while Russian women sing. So let's see how this goes. This looks like, okay, this is the Great Wall of China. Um, we're looking at the Great Wall of China over a large expanse. I think they're trying to say that this was actually remnants of the Tartarian Empire. So, a very magnificent structure, something that would even be hard to build today. I think they're trying to say that this is an example of this ancient civilization that ruled most of the earth. So, let's get into it. Is that baby crying in my headphones or outside of my apartment? There's been a lot of hype about Tartary lately, and what some are claiming is an effort to hide a significant chapter of human history. Up until the late 18th century, the great empire of Tartaria was a vast country located in northern and central Asia, stretching eastward from the Caspian Sea and from the Ural Mountains to the Pacific Ocean. It appears on ancient maps, had worldwide influence, and once was ruled by an Aryan nobility. That's starting to sound racist. Um, I think what we read before about Tartaria being Western literature's application to a large expanse of land they knew little about, 
I think may account for why this large swath of land was just called Tartaria. Probably like how parts of the ocean were say, here's where monsters lie and that sort of stuff. Um, let's, let's hope that this uh, stays sort of even keel and doesn't get too radical. It's on YouTube, so hopefully it's not too nuts. Here we see a modern interpretation of Genghis Khan. Yet in reality, Genghis Khan had red hair and either green or blue eyes. The same way that the tall, slender, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryan Buddha. This is starting to get racist. This is starting to get very racist. Uh, hmm. I thought this was more about buildings. Has been transformed in modern times into a fat or sometimes rather obese East Asian man. Painted on the walls of ancient Buddhist caves, we can see the true origins of the ancient cultures of China, Iran, India, where blonde and red-headed monks wear Chinese silk with Persian patterns, complete with a dot on their forehead. We see the red beard and uh, red hair. Okay, let me check out this guy whose video we're watching, Robert Sapir. And let's see if he's problematic. All right. Robert Sapir is an author, species with amnesia, occult secrets of viral. Hmm. This guy is an anthropologist, Robert Seifer. Robert Seifer. Rothschild. Okay, let's see what this guy. Um... I'm just trying to make sure this isn't some messed up because there are parts of the Tartarian. Let, let's just keep going with it. It's a shame that these figures have all been defaced by people of other faiths at some time in the past. But it's uh, still, it's very easy to see what they looked like and we can tell who they were. He's got the red beard. So basically they're describing depictions of people with red beards. <sighs> uh, red hair parted in the middle. These Silk Road Aryans left mummies. Okay, okay, this, I think this guy's hijacking the conspiracy. Um, okay, this may have gone. Th okay, okay, this, this, this might explain it better. That guy, I think, was a racist who was trying to basically say that the Tartarian Empire was part of. Three minutes. Okay, let's see what this guy has to say. Sorry. Obviously, I'm still learning a subject, but it's a massive subject. What I do know, know so far is that it was an empire that grew massive from near the Russian region, and all modern maps have had it removed, taken away from there. And I believe it was the largest empire to exist, hence why it got wiped out, because these guys seemed like they were doing stuff right. They were doing things for humanity. They had free energy. Okay, so for those in the Discord chat, I'm now discovering that you cannot hear uh, the the video. But basically, um, yeah. So a lot of this, the uh, what I heard about the Great Tartarian theory was that a lot of the buildings that we think are built in the 1900s 
were built by an ancient empire that uh, used some of the stuff that Tesla discovered. And these are some of the buildings that they talked about, like, like Gaudi's natural wonder. Like they think a lot of these weren't actually built back then. And that's just because they didn't think we had the technology to do it. But really these were made using that technology. So, hmm. Yeah, this this doesn't look like uh, this looks like tartar removal. Oh, I think that is teeth. Tartarian history. Yeah, I saw this on. Okay, let's see if this guy this isn't trying to make it racist. It is an area which we call the StolenHistory.net forums. Oh, this looks this looks weird. One of the central beliefs of the mud flood theory is that the flood buried a highly advanced global civilization, one that we are only now partially catching up with in terms of technological prowess. The name that has been consistently brought up as the prime contender for this great nation is Tartaria, also known as Great or Grand Tartaria, or the Tartarian Empire. It's claimed that Tartaria originated the famous architectural style that we attribute to the Romans hmm. and the Greeks, had sources of free energy, and existed until only 100 or 200 years ago. But what is the truth? Let's take a look. For thousands of years, the Eurasian steppe has continually turned out some of the most feared peoples in history. Stretching over 5,000 miles east to west, this strip of land has cultivated a tradition of horsemanship, tribalism, raiding and war since known memory. This culture crosses ethnic boundaries and includes peoples like the Scythians, the Saka, the Xiongnu, the Goturks, the Avars, the Huns, and of most interest to our story here, the Tatar. A Turkic proto-Mongolian people, the Tatar were originally synonymous with the Rurins, descendants of the Xiongnu confederation that tamed China in the 3rd century. The Rurin confederacy collapsed from infighting and some portion of the group fled to the greater Qingan mountain range where they renamed themselves hmm. Tatan after their leader, Yujilu Datan. This was recorded in the Book of Song, a Chinese book of history completed the following year in 493 AD. The name stuck and for centuries the group would grow and expand until it was one of the most prominent clans in the steppe. Over the centuries, the name spread west along the Silk Road, and it was heard and misheard until it finally reached the Persians as Tatar. As its use spread to the rest of Europe, it first crossed through primarily Latin and Greek-speaking areas, and thus an extra R found its way into the name for the comfort of the native tongues. And that is how the Tartars got their name in the west. It is not a coincidence that this extra letter evokes comparisons with the mythological Greek hell Tartarus. Quote, this play upon the words Tartarus, the infernal regions, and Tartar, which is here attributed to St. Louis, is found in almost all the documents of the period, and it is just possible that it affords the true explanation of the change made in the word Tatars by all the nations of the West. These tribes are called Tatari in the Russian chronicles, Tatari by Christophorus Manlius, and Tatari or Tatari in a letter written by Ives of Narbonne to Girod, Archbishop of Bordeaux. But as a rule, we find that they were called Tartars from the very first, and Tartari Imotatarai, Tartars from the depths of Tartarus, as the Emperor Frederick called them, became a favorite expression. There was certainly a very general impression that these Mongols were either demons sent to chastise mankind, or men who had dealings with demons. 
The Tartars, indeed, were on a hellacious warpath. The infamous Genghis Khan had assimilated all steppe peoples into his great Mongol horde by 1206, and the Tartars were one of the largest groups pressed into service. For generations later, both Mongol and Tartar would be interchangeable when it came to naming the scourge of raiding horsemen that plagued Europe. As Genghis's Khanate grew in both size and reputation, those far away dreaded the thought of this invading Tartarian Empire thundering down upon them. It's an odd thing to think about now in our world of globes, GPS. So that, I think, all sounded pretty legit when it comes to the history of that region. Um, there, now we're against the theory of whether there was an ancient civilization that actually ruled the whole Earth and did all these things that I think we're about to get into. In Google Earth. But from the dawn of time until only around 500 years ago, Europeans and Asians did not know what the other's continent looked like. They were quite good at mapping out their own regions, to be sure, but the greater world was shrouded in mystery. In 1154, Arab geographer Muhammad al-Idrisi created the first map to include both Europe and China on behalf of the Sicilians. However, India is missing, and there are other inaccuracies. It would take 400 more years before a truly accurate representation of the continents was given in the form of Ortelius's Theatrum Orbis Terrarum, one of the first world atlases. Cartography, the field of making and using maps, only hit its stride in the 15th century. Some factors for this include advancements in naval capabilities, the discovery of the New World, the beginnings of colonization, the advent of the printing press, and a general need for kingdoms to know their holdings in order to properly govern them. Maps from this aptly named Age of Discovery are stunningly accurate by modern standards. By comparison, maps from the medieval era are far more abstract. So I think this kind of disproves the whole theory the guy before was talking about, that there was some magical, like race of people that built buildings that we now think were built while we had machinery in the 1800s. And hopefully he's disproving this idea this whole civilization was wiped out by a gigantic mud flood. And more on the representative side rather than practical. Which brings us back to the topic at hand, Tartaria. The Mongols' wrath in Europe had raged in the 13th century, 200 years before the golden era of map making described. European leaders at the time were commissioning maps depicting areas and empires that they had very limited knowledge of, and used their own local terms without regard for foreign countries' true names. After all, how would they know them? So, we get maps titling the Mongol Empire as the Tartarian Empire, or even more generically as Tartaria, because that's what they were commonly called throughout Europe. Tartaria was not a separate entity, just another name for the Mongol-controlled lands. These maps were unfortunately the best resource European leaders had at the time, and they were preserved, passed down, and used as references for future maps. So that kind of settles it. It wasn't some huge conspiracy of some empire that was being erased from history, but rather a whole... Yeah, it was just the name for the Mongol Empire that we probably didn't have much contact with because they were warring with us and ransacking the East, Eastern Europe. So... As a result, as late as 1754, you can find maps with the blanket label of Tartaria being used to cover a vast swath of the Eurasian steppe. However, the Mongol Empire had already broken into numerous smaller hordes and khanates by 1260, and only continued to fracture more as the centuries went on. So why is the label of Tartaria still here almost 500 years later? Basically, laziness. 
This area of the steppe was mostly inhabited by nomadic peoples, after all, and there's really not many cities or towns. Plus, at this time, they were not an organized threat like the Mongol horde of old. So, who cares what local leader rules what tiny portion of this enormous area? They're all Tartar savages anyways. Just label it Tartaria and call it a day. Just ask the British. They'll tell you all about ignoring nuanced tribal relationships in favor of just labeling them all primitive. Hmm. With the names and the maps out of the way, there's only one more thing to debunk. The decline of the use of Tartar. One of the mudflood believers' claims is that the use of Tartar tapered off as a result of some shadowy group of elites seeking to erase them from history. While this is not something that can ultimately be proven or disproven, it is a fact that certain racial descriptions simply lose popularity over time. For example, it's no longer in vogue to refer to black Americans as Negroes, or to call Germans Krauts, or to call Asians Oriental, and yet all those terms were popular and widespread at one point. As ignorance declines, ignorant names will decline too. Once it became clear and well-known... So this guy pretty much spelt it out. That whole... Basically, a lot of what the conspiracy theorists were saying was that buildings weren't built in the modern times. They were built in the past by this crazy advanced civilization that some shady group of elites was trying to erase because they wanted to suppress their powers and the ability to spontaneously create energy, keep civilization addicted on petroleum products... And in turn, just, you know, oppress humanity. But this guy kind of laid it out. It was just a group of herding peoples who were once part of the Mongol Empire that they just labeled as Tartars because it was easier than trying to figure out who they actually were. That the Tartars were simply a part of the Mongols and not in charge nor the bulk of the Mongols, the name in popular discourse began to switch. Ultimately... There's nothing to this theory other than completely wild speculation. From the jump, this whole theory is based on simple ignorance to the facts and naming conventions of the past, and any further investigation into this area of the mud flood is folly. The believers in one breath will tell you that history is a lie in covering up this Grand Tartarian Empire, but in the next breath they'll tell you to believe maps from the 1700s are accurate about this Grand Empire existing. It's picking and choosing evidence that fits their theory, and it is not intellectually honest, nor is it credible. In my last video, I tackled the geological and chronological issues that plagued the mud flood theory, and now we've debunked the alternative history aspect to it. There's only one thing left to investigate now. The origins of the mud flood theory itself. Stay tuned. I spent 15 years of my career trying to create the digital mode. So that was that. Huh. So I guess we pretty much got a good explanation for what the Tartarian conspiracy was and how it was just a cartography mistake. Just a guy put a gigantic swath of land, they didn't know what was there, and created a whole conspiracy why they couldn't figure it out. Huh. So moving on, we are thirty, almost 30 minutes in to a three-hour podcast which means we're a sixth of the way in we're gonna pick up now we're getting our footings and now we're gonna check out another conspiracy theory what the fuck happened in the las vegas shooting but it's suspicious um now you know what we're gonna move on to some of the questions in the Reddit and uh, take a gander into 
what those could be. All right, number one upvoted comment. Talk about how the Franco-Prussian War set the stage for world wars. Let's check it out. Franco-Prussian Wars role in World War One. Let's watch a video. Hmm. Origins of World War One, the Franco-Prussian War. When I want to understand the cause or the impact of a war in history, it can be very tempting for me to read a basic synopsis of the conflict and believe that I understand the general idea. But oftentimes these summaries are limited worst misleading. This is especially true of the Franco-Prussian War, which was produced by years of contention and complex diplomatic intrigue. So to understand it, we first need to illustrate the geopolitical situation in Europe at the time. It's 1852 in France, and in an attempt to reanimate the French Empire, President Napoleon III names himself the new Emperor of France. This act blatantly signals the French re-entry into active power projection. Fast forward a year later in 1853, and France's new Emperor is already provoking Russia in the Crimean War. And even though France would claim victory, the war still proved rather inconclusive, but it did help bring France back onto the international stage. Regardless of this, Napoleon III was still eager for a more prestigious and powerful France. Switch over to Prussia in 1866 under King Wilhelm I as he finishes the Seven Weeks War against Austria. This war concluded with the formation of the North German Confederation and the end of Austria's influence in the German region. With half of Germany now unified under Prussia's banner and southern Germany without Austria's protection. What's weird is Prussia sounds a lot like Russia, but it's Germany. Just a comment. Like Germany wasn't even a country back then. Prussia sees a clear opportunity to expand her borders south, but there's one looming threat standing in her way. As can be inferred, the prospect of a unified German state to oppose France was not taken well by the French people and government. We can see the growing tension by the late 1860s between the competitors. Both sides knew that war was inevitable. France needed to stop Prussia from expanding, Prussia sought to unite Germany. But neither side wanted to start the war against each other out of fear of intervention by powers such as Britain and Russia. So for now, both sides would remain quiet. As tensions did increase, one event would prompt the two nations to take action against one another. In June of 1870, revolutionaries in Spain ousted their queen, Isabella II. The country was then without a legitimate ruler, and a letter was sent by the Spanish military junta to the Prussian prince Leopold. Wait a second, how is this outdated? Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Ooh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. What makes this so outdated? Numbers move you, but some can stop you in your tracks, like the tens of thousands of oh, new or actual soldiers, with another 100,000 being part of the Guard Mobile, which consisted of men who had paid their way out of conscription into the regular army. When the Germans reached Paris on the 17th... 
Thanks to Chase, Angie's not sweating this text. So, if you can't tell, I've been told to organize a three-hour podcast in less than basically three hours. And uh, we're all in this together, trying to get it going. Um, why does it make me watch two ads? Well, I'm up. That's the thing about YouTube. The rest of the neighborhood isn't online. And it's I your think turn to feed my the owl, honey. camera froze. Have to feed the owl because we tried to have a goat, but your dad ate it. Watson, the armchair historian. Hmm. In 1805, Napoleon Bonaparte delivered a coup de grace to the Holy Roman Empire at the Battle of Austerlitz, where the combined forces of Russia and Austria were decisively defeated by his smaller army. This victory established the French Empire as the dominant military power of the continent, pioneering new innovations in infantry tactics and artillery that left the rest of Europe in the dust. Napoleon swiftly reorganized the shattered remnants of the Holy Roman Empire into a French vassal and turned his attention to larger matters. In the end, it took the nations of Europe 23 years and seven coalitions to bring revolutionary France down in 1815. However, within a generation, a second French empire was founded by Napoleon's nephew. But in contrast to his uncle's military success, Napoleon III's empire was dismantled in a little over six weeks against a revitalized confederation of German states who proceeded to bombard their way to the gates of Paris. It can be argued that the Prussian leadership carried the legacy of French military innovation seen in the Napoleonic Wars better than the French themselves in the Franco-Prussian War of 1871 as the battle that would bring the Second Empire down was won primarily by skillful maneuvering and massed artillery, something Napoleon I was known for. This incompetence surely left Napoleon I's tail-coated corpse spinning in his grave, who once quoted, God fights on the side with the best artillery. In this video, we'll see- That's kind of funny that this that Napoleon's just like, God fights on the side with the best artillery, like- you're only gonna like God decides their allegiance just because who has better equipment. Exactly how this conflict played out, and how the Germans were able to reverse their French rivals' fortunes so decisively. I'd now like to take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Surfshark VPN. To use Surfshark VPN. Nation of the North German Confederation in 1867, Europe had a new power to contend with. The Austro-Prussian War. Okay, so I still haven't Europe figured out how the Franco-Prussian... What is the Franco-Prussian War? <sighs> okay, so the War of 1870, there's the Second French Empire, um... Okay, so Napoleon's involved. So Napoleon in the North German Confederation led by the Kingdom of Prussia. So it was a one-year war. France wanted to reassert its dominant position in continental Europe, which appeared to follow the decisive Prussian victory over Austria in 1866. Okay, so how did this cause World War I? Aftermath. So let's say they fought... Napoleon fought Prussia. How did this affect? Quick German victory over the French stunned neutral observers, many of whom expected a French victory and most of whom had expected a long war. 
So the strategic advantages, which the Germans were not appreciated outside of Germany until after hostilities had ceased. Other countries quickly discerned the advantages given to the Germans by their military system and adopted many of their innovations, particularly the general staff, universal conscription, and highly detailed mobilization systems. Huh. General staff. Okay, so a group of officers enlisted to serve. So these are new concepts. Universal conscription, meaning that everyone had to serve. Um, huh. So it affected military thought. How, how? So I guess this unifying Germany. This one's a hard one. How did. Well, we know World War One started. Like, how did that cause it? Okay. This is just stupid. Okay, we, we didn't figure that out. We didn't, we didn't figure that out. What's the next question? How big is your horn? Hmm. All right, well, cryptids. Let's look at some cryptids. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a doozy, guys, and uh, we're 45 minutes in. Um, hmm. A lot of dead air to fill. 45 minutes in. Iyer saw a David and Goliath struggle between the Kingdom of Prussia and the Empire of Austria for control over the German-speaking states, which resulted in a clear victory for Prussia and the formation of the North German Confederation. Legendary Prussian statesman Otto von Bismarck was chiefly responsible for this conflict, having carefully manipulated events to ensure that his modern, prosperous state took the lead in German affairs, instead of the ethnically divided and militarily outmoded Austria. But Prussia's sudden return to international prominence did not go unnoticed by its perennial adversary, France. Emperor Charles-Louis Napoleon III was constantly trying to emulate the deeds of his more famous uncle and had even timed his coup against the former Republican government to coincide with the storied Okay, this is too complicated. This, this, this looks better. The new Three minutes explain the Franco-Prussian War. Deal. Nice. But everyone should get it. Everyone can get it. Every new customer. Every existing customer. Every iPhone. Every iPhone. Okay. My work here is done. 1868 and Spain has just had a revolution. They saw Queen Isabella II overthrown and replaced with no one for now. Instead, the Spanish looked abroad for a new monarch and the best candidate was a man Hohenzollern is here, by the way. Leopold didn't really want the throne, but was coerced into formally considering the claim in 1870 by a certain Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of the North German Confederation, which was mostly just Prussia, whose king was William I of the House of Hohenzollern. There was one issue with Leopold accepting the Spanish throne. France under Emperor Napoleon III, who wasn't okay with the Hohenzollern controlling Spain. For France, being encircled by a friendly German-Spanish alliance was not something they wanted to deal with. 
again that is, and so Napoleon wouldn't tolerate Leopold pushing his claim. Napoleon sent his ambassador to meet the Prussian king at Bad Ems, William's summer retreat to demand that he would one, no longer back Leopold's claim which William could accept, and two, he would never back any Hohenzollern claim to the Spanish throne ever again, which of course William could never do and so he said no. Bismarck then leaked a slightly edited telegram of William's refusal known as the Ems telegram to the press which made it sound like the king had simply told the French to mind their own business. To the French this insult was too much and Napoleon decided to preempt public outrage and ordered the mobilisation of the French army. Soon after this, the French parliament voted to declare war on the North German Confederation. The Franco-Prussian War had begun. For the southern independent German states, Bavaria, Württemberg and Baden, the way that William had appeared to have been treated by the French was too much. Along with the fact that the French declaration of war over an insult made it seem like there wasn't much stopping the French from invading if they felt like it. As such, curbing French aggression required the southern German states to ally with the North German Confederation. So France had a large, well-equipped army based around a corps of professionals. That's not to say the Prussians were necessarily at a disadvantage. Their army was of a similar size, was also well-equipped and contained many veterans. It was the general superior Prussian generalship like that of Helmut von Moltke which saw France on the back foot. That Okay, well that's that sounds like World War II that name. Combined with Prussia's greater use of railways to move troops and supplies to the front lines meant that Prussia could bring its full force to bear much quicker. The German allies won their first victory at the Battle of Wissenberg on August the 4th which opened the way to further advances into France. Over the next month the French would suffer a series of defeats until Emperor Napoleon met the Prussians <laughs> at the Battle of Sedan. This battle... You know what's the only thing I know about Prussians? So remember how like the Nazis had like a lot of generals with scars on their face? So yeah, dueling scars. So what the Prussians used to do what the Prussians used to do is and I'm going to pull it up is they used to give themselves scars that they claimed they got from duels because it made them look tough. And that is like pretty ridiculous. So these guys would purposely scar themselves and like, yeah, like that, like they would look evil as fuck just so they could. So dueling scars were popular amongst upper class Austrians and Germans involved in academic fencing. So these guys were just in college giving each other scars. It was a mark of their class and honor due to the status of dueling societies at German and Austrian universities at the time, an early example of scarification in European society. The practice of dueling and the associated scars was also present to some extent in the German military. Foreign tourists visiting Germany in the late 19th century were shocked to see such students generally with their at their major universities with facial scars, some older, some more recent, and some still wrapped in bandages. So these guys were just like, that's pretty metal. Academic fencing was very different from modern fencing because they used developed swords. So these guys were just knifing each other in the face to look cool. And that's that's pretty insane. That's the only thing I really knew about Prussia is that they, they would do that shit. See, they still do it today? What the fuck? Secretive fraternities of Germany and Austria. Does this guy was that guy's got the scar, dueling scars. He still got scars, but that those are like you could get away with those. But well, that's just weird. But uh, 
did not go too well for the French, and Napoleon, along with over 100,000 men, were defeated and forced to surrender. Once news of his surrender reached the capital, there were riots and a revolution, which saw the proclamation of a republic, because it was 19th century Paris, and that was what Paris did then. After this, the French army basically disintegrated, and the German allies then took the fortresses of Strasbourg and Metz, and soon after laid siege to Paris. The people of Paris refused to allow the allies in, and so dug in to resist. The siege was absolutely brutal on the population, and starvation and disease took a tremendous... That's wild. The Germans in this war were called the Allies. Toll. The new leader of the French Republic, Adolf Thiers, was tasked with negotiating a peace with the Prussians, who weren't the Prussians anymore, since in January 1871 the German Allies had proclaimed the new German Empire. A ceasefire was agreed in February, and after a small revolution in Paris had to be crushed, the Paris Commune, both nations signed the Treaty of Frankfurt in May of 1871. The treaty saw the Germans continue to occupy parts of France until a large war indemnity was paid. The French also agreed to recognise the new German Empire, and of course, Germany would annex the territory of Alsace-Lorraine, or should I say, Alsace-Lutringen. The Franco-Prussian War was now over, and it had absolutely colossal implications for history. It saw the unification of the German Empire, which fundamentally shifted the balance of power in Europe. Okay, that's what caused World War One: The unified Germany because of France then started acting up. And they, that's probably how the Austro-Hungarian Empire got going. The annexation of Alsace-Lorraine would dominate French politics for the next four decades and guarantee French hostility to Germany. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for watching. A special thanks to James Bizonet, Azarka. Huh. So. Hmm. Why are so many European royal families German? Actually, that looks, that looks interesting. Um, so I guess the unifying Germany is what kind of caused. So like, how did World War One start? So yeah, they they assassinated Franz Ferdinand. So Kaiser. Huh. Whatever. Why are so many ro royal families German? Europe were ruled by monarchs, and these were ruled by monarchs of a German royal family. Quite a lot. And given that some of these rulers could trace their houses back a thousand years and others mere decades, why were so many of them German? So a lot of this can be explained by one thing. The late unification of Germany. At the turn of the 18th century, the German-speaking parts of Europe weren't unified like the French, English or Spanish-speaking parts. It was divided into numerous smaller states, many of which had their own monarchies. And these monarchs would marry off their kids to whoever would have them. A Prussian... So German monarchs were just, like, for sale? A princess married the Prince of Orange, a Brunswicker Duchess married the King of Denmark, a Badener Duchess married the King of Sweden, and one from Mecklenburg married the King of the United Kingdom. Given that all of these monarchies only really paid lip service to their overlords, the Holy Roman Emperors, there wasn't much risk in marrying them. Whereas marrying someone in the French royal family could cause issues with inheritance, which France, unlike the small German states, could press. And, over time, childless or female heirs would mean a near relative would succeed the throne, and they would be a member of their father's often German house. But what about countries individually? Well, the United Kingdom's monarchy had previously been Anglo-Saxon, French, Welsh and Scottish. After a flirt with Catholicism, English nobles called upon William of Orange to seize the throne from James II. He did, and Catholics were then banned from becoming ruler. William also didn't have an- Alright, this is boring. We are now approaching one hour of podcasting.
Thank you for sitting through this. We're trying here. Um, let's start talking about my favorite. Let's talk about Moby Dick. Moby Dick's a pretty awesome book. It was actually one of the favorite books I read in school. Um, because of that. Here, wait. The Hammer and the Wing. And because of that. Hmm. One second. Yeah, so Moby Dick. Moby Dick's one of my favorite books. I think it's actually pretty cool, some of the quotes of it. Nature points out the folly of man. That's Blue Oyster Cult. I thought that was actually lyrics from Moby Dick. Um... But here, let's look at a Moby Dick summary, and then we're going to talk about some key themes. Plot summary. Herman Melville's epic novel Moby Dick takes place in the 19th century and follows the journey of the Pequod a whaling ship captained by the monomaniacal Captain Ahab. In the introduction, Ishmael, the narrator, decides to sign on to a whaling ship. He travels from Manhattan to New Bedford, where he makes an unlikely friend, Queequeg, a cannibal from a South Sea island who works as a harpooner. They decide to ship out together and are able to secure positions on the Pequod, owned by Captain Peleg and Captain Bildad. A mysterious stranger named Elijah warns them about the captain of the Pequod, in the rising action, on Christmas Day, the Pequod sets out from Nantucket, loaded with supplies for a three-year voyage of whale hunting. While Ahab remains locked away in his cabin, Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask, the first, second, and third mates, respectively, keep things running smoothly. Eventually, Ahab emerges, and Ishmael gets his first glimpse of the mysterious captain, a brooding man with one whalebone peg leg. Soon, Ahab reveals his true mission, not to hunt sperm whales, but to hunt one in particular. And not for profit, but for revenge. Ahab is obsessed with his quest for vengeance against the white whale Moby Dick, a sperm whale responsible for the loss of Ahab's leg. Captain Ahab nails a gold coin to the mast of the ship and tells the men that whoever finds Moby Dick will earn it as a reward. All of the men, except Starbuck, enthusiastically agree to this quest for vengeance. There are officially three mates on board, each of whom will be in charge of one of the smaller whale boats, and each of these mates has an assigned harpooner, Queequeg, Tashtego, and Dashtego. <coughs> However, when a whale is actually sighted, Ahab's own boat crew, led by a devilish, mysterious man named Fadala, is revealed. Ahab has prepared his own whale boat with accommodations for his peg leg. The Pequod sails on from time to time encountering sperm whales and killing them, and occasionally seeing other whaling ships. Each time another ship is met, Ahab asks for news of the white whale, and if the ship hasn't seen it, he sails on immediately. But if there is news, he listens intently. Along the way, Queequeg becomes ill and has a coffin made for himself. He recovers, and the coffin is converted into a life buoy. The tension between Ahab and Starbuck, who believes that Ahab's quest is blasphemous and foolish, intensifies, leading to a confrontation between the two. Eventually, they meet a ship that recently had a run-in with Moby Dick, and shortly thereafter, Ahab himself sights the white whale. 
the hunting boats are lowered, and a dramatic chase ensues. For three days, the crew of the Pequod tries to kill Moby Dick, who smashes the whaleboat and proves to be nearly impossible. Yeah, I, I'm interrupting this video to bring you a red wolf, which I think is one of the coolest can canines that I've ever seen. Look at that. It's not a fox, nor wolf, nor raccoon. It's just a long-legged South American beast. It's like, its long legs are honestly super creepy. I don't know what it is about it. Like, look at those long ass legs. Creepy as hell. Anyway, back, back to Moby Dick. Possible to kill. In the climax of the novel, on the third and final day of fighting, Moby Dick sinks the Pequod and kills Ahab. In the falling action, Ishmael survives by floating on Queequeg's coffin. In the resolution, the narrator is rescued, and he alone lives to tell the tale. Huh. So, Moby Dick is one of my favorite books because it's about a bunch of dudes hopping in a boat and just going ham. It's like, think about it. And we are officially one hour in. If you can see. <clears throat> All right, so. I can't believe they gave me zero prep time and made me put together a gigantic three hour solo podcast. Um, I'm actually going to take a break from trying. I'm, I'm just going to get loose with it. Let's go on Twitter and fuck around. <sighs> Pull up the huddle. Yeah, you know what? You know what? Watch my highlight tape. I'm going to should I dox myself. <sighs> Do Collins. I can't. Do Collins. Go to a random celebrity gender try to do impressions. Are you the host? Yes, I am. After I finish this task, just repeat the first hour for the final two hours. No one will listen long enough to call you out. That is a good, good move. Roast everyone at Barstool Sports. Hey, Billy, mind giving me a shout out since you have time to kill? Cronin O'Brien, shout out. Cronin underscore O'Brien. Um... Hmm, that's a funny video. Don't shoot. Oh, I can't believe this is a podcast form. Just read a newspaper out loud. List the top 10 NFL players in our of how many first graders it would take to take each of them down. Okay, let's do that. Number one on the list, Aaron Donald. Or, you know what, let's just go to YouTube.
This found book raises doubts about the origin of humankind. Let's check this Work out. Closet Factory. We turn the most cluttered parts of your home into the most organized, which saves you time. Are you a book lover? Certainly, a lot of people in the world enjoy reading this. books, and some of them became classics that almost everyone in the world knows. Books inform, entertain, and even provoke thought. But several authors throughout history have made it their mission to puzzle anyone that reads their work. From the Red Book to a 1,500-year-old Bible, here are the 15 most mysterious books written in history. Number 15. The Red Book by Carl Jung If you're into psychology, then you're probably already familiar with Carl Gustav Jung. Carl Jung, together with Sigmund Freud, are two of the most prominent psychoanalysts that we still recognize to this day. He's actually the one that developed the concept and theory of extroversion and introversion, and his theories have become the basis of many psychological concepts we know. So what's so special about the Red Book he's written? Does it contain secrets about the human mind? Not really. What made the Red Book so mysterious is that Carl Jung's family hid it for 80 years, and it contained some of the most personal thoughts of the Swiss psychiatrist. This red leather-bound book contained Jung's exploration of himself. It has some psychedelic drawings that only he could interpret. Unlike most of his work, the Red Book contained hypnagogic, chaotic, and compulsively written texts. As one of the most prominent psychiatrists at the time, Jung knew that if anyone read the contents of the Red Book, his reputation and career could be ruined. And so, it was never published, even after his death. His family then kept the book in a bank vault in Switzerland before it was finally revealed to the public. The book was displayed in the Rubin Museum of Art in New York. And today, you can grab a copy of the book, although you have to shell out a couple hundred dollars. Before we go on, like this video, smash the subscribe button, and click the notable other world. Or Wait, so what is this red book? Universe. Depending on the genre, you might be able to know of a world where there are wizards, a dystopian place, or even, I don't know, a talking lion. But while world building is extremely important, that doesn't mean you can just write anything. Many people seem to think that the author of Codex Seraphinianus drew the most random things in the book. Some even theorize that the Codex is a guide about things on an extraterrestrial planet. I mean, just take a look at these photos and see if you can make sense of them. Here, you can see a weird-looking establishment that looks straight out of a video game. Here, you have a weird red circle where ladybugs are coming out. And on this page, you have the photo of a hideous animal tied to a stove that's cooked. This looks like something that was created on acid. Cooking some sunny-side-up eggs. Let's not forget about the weird plants and the weird-looking people with some pretty creative outfits that we've never seen before. This book was first published in 1981, and ever since, it has caught the attention of people around the world. From these images alone, it isn't really surprising, but its strangeness doesn't end with the illustrations inside. Even the alphabet used in this book is quite indescribable, and it's also indecipherable. Needless to say, this book has many artists, philosophers, and linguists scratching their heads while trying to unravel the meanings of the illustrations and texts. Number 13. Rohan's Codex This 448-page manuscript that has been baffling scholars and historians ever since its discovery is known as the Rohan's Codex. This book was named after a city in Hungary where the book was kept until it was donated to the Academy in 1838. Despite being an illustrated manuscript, no one could decipher what the texts say, and the author of this book is also unknown. Around 800 symbols are written in this book, which is immensely greater than the normal number you'd find in any known alphabet today. 
Another strange detail is that there's barely any repetition in the symbols used in this book. It has led many to think that perhaps the symbols used here aren't an alphabet, but instead a syllabary or logographic in nature. Looking at the illustrations alone also won't give you any clue as to what exactly the book is about. Has anyone cracked this code? I'm trying to figure that out. A few illustrations seem to portray religious and military scenes, and many believe that this book depicts a world where Christians, pagans, and Muslims coexist. However, this claim was never confirmed, and neither were any of the other theories about this book's contents. Throughout the years, many scholars tried to crack the confusing and cryptic messages in this book, those that claimed to have cracked the code all had inconsistencies in their methods. With a lack of answers, many became inclined to believe that perhaps the Rohan's Codex is just a hoax created sometime in the 16th to 17th centuries. Number 12. Voynich Manuscript The Voynich Manuscript is one of the most well-known books in history, but it's not because of the usual reason. This book has captured the curiosity of scholars and cryptologists for centuries, and it continues to baffle internet sleuths to this day. The Voynich Manuscript is a book written in a language that we haven't decoded yet. This 600-year-old book has about 240 pages, and it contains loopy text with illustrations of women, astrological symbols, and strange plants. Some of these vellum pages even contain dragons, castles, and floating heads. The book was believed to have been stored in Prague for a while, and in 1639... Yeah, this stuff's way too far out there. Way too far out there. And we are almost halfway. We're 20 minutes from halfway. Unit 731. What is Unit 731? What is Unit 731? Unit 731, short for the Manchu Detachment, Camo Attachment, was a covert biological and chemical warfare research development unit. Ooh, lethal. Oh, that doesn't look good. Um, that's where the Japanese developed lethal human experimentation biological weapons. Why is every topic related to World War II that people are proposing? Um, we're Operation Paperclip. Wait. Arrested Soviet forces were tried in 1949 in war crime trials. Those captured by the United States were secretly given immunity. So what did they do? It was officially known as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kwantung Army, originally set up by the Kenpitai Military Police of the Empire of Japan. Unit 731 was taken over and commanded until the end of the war. What did they do? Frostbite testing. Okay, ooh, that's bad stuff. Basically, they were doing frostbite testing, syphilis, weapons testing on people. Japanese government wasn't good at that time. What else do they want? Huh. Unsolved murders. Aurora, Texas incident. Aurora, Texas UFO incident. Let's try to check out a video. For more than half a century, Seiko has... That may just contain the most important grave 
in the world. This guy looks weird. That guy looks weird. The Aurora, Texas Spaceman. If you're going to break down, you're going to break down in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'm not the only stranger this ever happened to. One day long ago, another stranger broke down here. It was April 19th, 1897. The only difference is he never lived to tell about it. A local news reporter gave the story to the Dallas Morning News, and it's been in and out of print ever since. Jim Mars of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Well, the newspaper clipping simply said that a cigar-shaped object, brightly illuminated, floated over overhead uh, in the early morning hours and crashed on the hillside. And then in the story, it said the pilot of the craft, comma, which was not of this earth, comma, was given a Christian burial in Aurora Cemetery. But one resident of Aurora since 1920, Miss Etta Pegas, considered an expert on the town's history, disagrees. I never heard of the spaceman. I moved to Aurora in 1920, and not one word did anybody ever mention about him. However, an eyewitness, 86-year-old Charlie Stevens, claims when he was seven in 1897, he saw the crash. We don't want to trouble you too much about this because we know you're not feeling too well. Because of the years of harassment, he refused to appear on camera, but he did agree to talk to us. Think you can tell me what you remember about the night that the light went over the house? There's been more people, more souls about that, but I see my own eyes and We went up there and seen the spot where it burned. Some people think it's a hoax. But it fell. It fell. It wouldn't be until the late 60s that the International UFO Bureau would uncover the story. Hayden Hughes, director of IUFOB. This is one of the controversial aspects of the incident. Were the news accounts at the time genuine? Tell me the truth. What do you think? Is there anything here? In 1973, when I came here first, there, there was at least a partial headstone here. I'll show you what I saw. There was only half of a tombstone, which went something like this. And on this was a very curious mark that went something like this. This was just a rock that had been hand-cued, uh, and, and uh, this had been chipped out of it with some kind of chisel or something. But as you can see, it's just a curious little object. But I think we could see if there was the other half was on here, we'd have what appeared to be a tombstone. And if you brought this mark to this side, you would have something like this, which gives you a definite saucer shape. What do you think this is? I think it's just a piece of fiction. It keeps Wise County on the map. That's all I can say. Keeping Wise County on the map is the reason Miss Etta and many others believe the spaceman's story was written. From what she told me, the gay 90s had not been kind to the little town of Aurora. They'd lost cotton to the boll weevil, half the business district in a fire, and hundreds of citizens to spotted fever. People left the town in droves. In those days, even a Martian wouldn't be caught dead in Aurora. The general consensus of opinion is that he uh, wrote this story to bring people back in into the uh, community. See, the, it, that spotted fever caused a veritable stampede out of the town. Well, we were not dealing just with one case. All over, people were reporting something. 
and one of these somethings appears to have crashed. The crash site today is owned by Mrs. Brawley Oates, who gets calls in the middle of the night and thousands of visitors at her door. Uh, there sure has been a lot of them here. <laughs> so basically, these people think that whatever this spaceman was, wasn't real, and it was just to keep their small town Texas on the map. Uh, the thing about it, they just pressed me for what's happened here, and I, if there's anything happened here, I don't know about it. Thing. My grandkids went out there with a screen off one of the screen doors, and they sifted sand out there, and they found little particles of metal, lead-looking metal, but it wasn't lead. Another clue leading to still more questions. I know one thing, you don't ever die down. Just on and on, it's just like a mushroom. It just gets bigger and bigger, and it just goes further and further all over the world. One man who has tried to keep the story from spreading any further is the sheriff of Aurora. Armed with a shotgun, he spent 24 hours a day guarding the graves in the cemetery from treasure hunters and curiosity seekers. And in return, all he got was an ulcer. Were you the one that, oh, you're the guy. While I gassed up, we had a few words. Yet you were up here with a shotgun? Very few. A lot of the town people here believe that there's... So this guy guarded the alien grave with a shotgun? Curiosity seekers, and in return, all he got was an ulcer. Were you the one that, oh, you're the guy While I gassed up, we had a few words. Yeah, you were up here with a shotgun. Very few. A lot of the town people here believe that there's a UFO up there. A lot of them did, a lot of them did. It's fair. It's what do you think? You think they should get down here and dig it up and settle it once and for all? No. If we can find the exact grave and get the permission from the Aurora Cemetery Association to actually... The style back then, like this... <laughs> this is how I imagine Jersey Jerry would wear his hair Bodies if he was back then. That we could have the evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. Mr. Nobles, you represent the Aurora Cemetery Association. What's their position in this matter? They have a, a very uh, uh, definite objection to anybody going down there with pick and shovels and wanting to dig a hole. Why? Well, they're afraid somebody will dig up Grandma. They are afraid, that, and I would be too, that there'd be a germ lurking there if they dug up somebody that died with that spotted fever. And Get, get the thing started again. Well, that's the story of the Aurora Spaceman. Part of the story lies buried here in the Aurora Cemetery. And the rest of the story is inside that house, locked up in the mind of 86-year-old Charlie Stevens. What the hell? What did they find? <laughs> That's weird. Very weird stuff. Uh, we are an hour and 42 minutes left in this podcast. This is actually so fucking annoying.
this is like one of those. I get set up for fucking failures so fucking much. And it makes great content, but it's just fucking hard, man. It takes stand-up comedians months to fucking do this shit. Now my whole fucking weekend's ruined because PFT want to get his fucking rocks off. PFT made me do this. We have been recording for an hour and 17 minutes. Let's just take a halftime break. Halftime break. <laughs> um, we're talking about Moby Dick. <laughs> uh, Gage Shaw, chill out. We're here. Sorry for the dead air. The first the first 45 minutes were decent, right? I mean, holding dead air with no one to bounce off of is uh, pretty hard. Um, everyone keeps talking about Operation Paper. Uh, Operation High Jump. What the hell is Operation High Jump? Thanks, Mara. Huh. So Operation High Jump's been described as something like UFO. What is this? What is this? What is this? Task Force 68. Okay. The Antarctic. This is an old fashioned black and white film. Commander Task Force 68 presents this picture in hopes that it will be of educational value to those having little or no knowledge of the Antarctic and the problems involved in the forthcoming operations. The scenes you are about to see were taken by the U.S. Antarctic Service Expedition of 1939-41, a combined Army, Navy, Coast Guard, uh, and civilian expedition that do not present all the problems you may encounter. However, pay particular attention to those that are presented afterwards. Be curious, ask questions. The information gained regarding this region will make your tasks easier and less hazardous. So this is what they were giving to people going on Operation High Jump, which was an expedition after Antarctica, World War II. The South Polar Continent lies almost entirely within the Antarctic Circle and has an area of about 6 million square miles, nearly equal to the combined areas of the United States and Europe. Most of the continent and some of the coastline is unexplored. It is the world's highest continent, averaging 6,000 feet in elevation. The polar plateau 
A vast expanse of ice and snow is 10,000 feet high. There are extensive mountain ranges with peaks in excess of 13,000 feet. There are few good harbors or safe anchorages. In most places, ships have to moor to the ice by use of ice anchors and keep steam up in readiness to move in the event of bad weather or ice conditions. Temperatures have been observed as low as 76.6 degrees below zero Fahrenheit and nearly 110 degrees below freezing. However, during the period of operations of the task force, the ground forces probably will not encounter colder temperatures than 10 degrees below zero. Blizzards of 100 miles per hour force have been recorded. It is easy to freeze or get lost in a blizzard if one is careless. En route to the Antarctic in November 1939 from Boston, the bear puts in at the Navy Yard at Norfolk, Virginia to pick up the pontoon-equipped Barclay Grow airplane and to take on ballast. The pontoons are specially built Edo floats for landing on either ice or water. the ship departs Panama. The I mean, what the fuck is this shit? What the hell's Operation High Jump? <sighs> what, what are these hostile planes? They're trying to make sure that people couldn't be attacked by planes in Antarctica. We just live chat third. Yeah, Thursday night football's on soon. I'll turn it on. <laughs> uh, that's an hour and a half in. I I might just call PFT and fucking let him have it. So podcast fucking sucks. This fucking sucks. If I had time to prep a three-hour podcast, but I have like stuff to do this weekend, and <sighs> Gabe, yeah, I mean, I can't have anyone else on this podcast. It has to be me. This is this is what's going on. Time to clean the deck. Radney swears at Steel Kid and grabs a nearby hammer, which he shakes in the man's face. Steel Kid stays calm. He walks slowly backward away from the mate, refusing to get into a fight as Radney keeps threatening him with the hammer. Eventually, Steel Kid thinks he's endured enough and stops retreating and tells Radney that he's not going to obey the orders and the mate should put the hammer down or else. This is PFT in the hot sauce. PFT, Radney swings the hammer. That moment, it touches Steel Kid's cheek. Steel Kid knocks Radney's jaw back into his head. Rodney, Radney falls down bleeding profusely. Basically, 
this isn't going to see the light of day. This podcast can't see the light of day. This is fucking stupid. This is so fucking stupid. I'm not, I'm not doing the rest of this. <laughs> I'm going to stay on for three hours to prove that I can do it. But this just is a bad, basically the aspects I've been given for this podcast do not, the criteria I was given do not make a good product. So I've been set up in a position to fail and I will do the crime, but I'm not producing a product to make other people listen to that isn't good. I'm tweeting. Halfway through a three-hour podcast, I'm going to finish it, but the criteria I was given to the criteria and conditions were now going to help me try to get out of ever having to send this out. But the criteria and conditions I was given to make it do not do not allow it by any means but the criteria conditions and deadline is given to make it do not allow it by any means to be a good product i I hope this will never, I hope the full podcast never sees the light of day, but several clips will be funny. So yeah, anyway, I don't know why this town host story, there's certain quotes about this town host story. Um, Radney, Charlemagne. <laughs> now as you well know it is not seldom the case in this conventional world of ours watery or otherwise that when a person placed in command over his fellow men finds one of them to be significantly his superior and general pride of manhood straightway against the man he conceives an unconquerable dislike and bitterness so uh, that's what's going on right now he is jealous of my manliness and is torturing me for it. 
Moby Dick. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, so that's what's happening. It's a funny quote. It's a very funny quote. That's always last because sometimes you have bosses. I mean, honestly, I'm exaggerating right now of PFT and I'm pissed off. I'm, I'm actually going to text this to, see, to him and see what happens. I'm going to send it. This is... We're going to start answering questions from the Reddit. Let's just see what kind of questions they got. <sighs> Rank crimes. Seven wonders of wood world. Hmm. Correlation of someone's weight and gambling ability. You can't do this with one person. Explore the modern American diet. All this requires preparation that just could not be done. The path to Russian victory in Ukraine. A week in the life of Billy Football. Everything from what you do, work, workouts, how you unwind, food, and anything else interesting. All right. Sunday. Let's just start Sunday. Sunday morning, wake up. Hungover. Go for a run. Try to sweat out the poison. Try to sneak into the gym to get into the sauna after the run and sweat out more poison. If get caught by the person that, oh, your gym membership is expired, then be like, hey, can I get a one-day pass? Then get into the sauna. Sauna out, go back home. Get ready for the day. Oh, I've also ran with my dog, dog's exercise, ready to start the rest of the Sunday. Try to get in during football season at one o'clock, depending on if the Jets play at one o'clock, that means that they usually weren't playing them on the big screen, but now they are. So then you can get away with going in later. Go in on Sunday, uh, start uh, Football Guy of the Week, start looking for stories, any little blog topics you can do, watch the Jets game, blog something from the Jets game, blog anything. Then, towards the end of the day, uh, once you get that all set, you can kind of start to enjoy um, uh, the football and start prepping for the show. Who's back the week? Anything else you need to fact? Statistics, stuff from the Jets game. Um, any other stats you want to talk about? Sam Ellinger stuff. Um, just keep taking notes. Notes, notes, notes. All during football. Uh, then we get ready to record. Start, you know, a lot of that. That gets tough when you're sitting in the podcast room. It gets hot. You start sweating. Um, and you got to stay alert. Um, because it's late at night. 
And then, you know, do your segments, make your comments where you can, get out of the studio anywhere from 2 to 4 a.m., get home, um, try to fall asleep. It's kind of difficult because you've probably been consuming a lot of caffeine, nicotine throughout the Sunday. So then it's Monday. Monday morning, get up, try to get up before nine. It's tough after getting, being up till God knows what hour. Work out. If you can, start prepping for macrodosing. Uh, we have a lot of macrodosing interviews on Monday. Um, so prep, prep, prep. Try to get a blog off. Uh, might get into work late while you're prepping for everything. And then go into the office. Try to get a workout. Now, that workout's usually Monday morning is usually a run with the dog, two miles, and then just do squats, like a quick, you know, uh, three work sets, uh, very heavy. Try I try not to go too heavy on squats anymore, but like 315, three by five. And then uh, start off with like a warm-up set of 225 by 20, finish with 225 by 20. So that's a quick workout. Uh, on a Monday morning that you can just bang out, you get your legs done, running, cardio, then squatting. Get into the office, uh, do nano dosing and the interview. The interview usually is then put on the uh, macro dosing on Thursday. Then with that, you can continue uh, throughout the day. So Monday, you get done. Monday Night Football is coming up. So try to get home, do a little relaxing, eat a good dinner, uh, Chipotle, something easy. Uh, and then Monday Night Football comes around. Monday Night Football, you're watching, you're live tweeting. Uh, that's another thing on Sunday, you're live tweeting the whole time. Live tweet football on Monday. Try to get something off. Uh, try to blog anything that you can that night. Tuesday, Tuesday, wake up. We've been recording early on Tuesdays during football season. Uh, wake up, try to get a workout. If it's like a, you know, a very early, like a 10 a.m. recording, which isn't that early, but because we were watching Monday Night Football the night before, you're really like getting done after like 11.30 and you're trying to figure out, like fall asleep. So again, at 10, probably don't work out uh, Tuesday morning because you're getting in early. Work Tuesday, try to, you know, and by the way, you're trying to get a TikTok one or two TikToks done every day, um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, going in. Uh, then Tuesday, you're kind of done early. There's also other stuff. You're filming ads. You're filming uh, other people in the company want you to do stuff. Uh, so then Tuesday, you get home early. That's a good night to, you know, if you have, uh, get like maybe dinner with a friend are my Tuesday nights. Like that's an open night for me. Um, and then just like, if there's anything cool to blog, get it off. Tuesday's a good blogging day because there's no football. So you can find an obscure story and blog it. Um, oh, also Tuesday night, start prepping for Wednesday macrodosing, whichever topic it is. Uh, and then, you know, try to get to bed early because that's a night. It's not a Thursday night, uh, Tuesday night. Tuesday night and Wednesday night are the nights to get a good night's sleep during the week because Sunday nights, always bad night's sleep. Uh, Monday night after Monday night football, bad night's sleep. And then Thursday night, Thursday night football uh, is decent, but you're up late. Um, so then from there, Wednesday, 
Uh, macrodosing usually starts at one. If you're prepping all morning for macrodosing on Wednesday, uh, try to get a blog off before you go in, see whatever stories cutting, uh, hitting early, um, and then also work out. Uh, yeah, uh, that workout is probably Tuesday. Tuesday afternoon is usually a workout too. That's probably a heavier workout. That's probably like um, upper body, just you know, bench, pull, back, uh, and then finish up with some boxing. Just after, just like limber up the joints after the weight training, and just like get the loosen them up after going so hard on them. It, it's fun, and then. Uh, uh, boxing's 15 one minute rounds. I only train one minute rounds cause rough around is only one minute. So gotta stay ready. Uh, Wednesday morning, you get a workout in, uh, that's probably legs again, a combination of boxing and legs, try to get your arms athletic. Oh, but also Wednesday nights. Sometimes I have basketball games. I'm in a league right now, so I won't work out on a day of a basketball game. Uh, Thursday, we usually record early, um, uh, part of my take, that's a lot of prep during football season, all your picks, all everything. Uh, who's back? Uh, Firefest. Uh, and then, you know, Fantasy Fuck Boys. Uh, it's a lot of stuff to write down on the notepad. So then we record Thursday morning, and then we usually have Thursday afternoon off, but you're also probably trying to get a blog in uh, as much as you can doing whatever projects sales needs you to do. Sale needs you to do an ad for this, a small video, TikTok, trying to get all that done. Thursday night football, we stay late, record a little bit at the end. Uh, and then our week is kind of over. Uh, but then you we, we kind of work six days a week. Uh, then Friday, if you didn't get many blogs off that week, Friday, you're trying to get blogs off, trying to get TikToks off. I try to get three TikToks, as many blogs as I can, and then like try to be done by 12 and then just start my weekend. Um, on the weekends, I'm just, I've gotten to the age where like my weekends become super scheduled. Everyone's like doing shit, but if I can get a Saturday off just to sit on the couch, watch college football, drink some beers, take my dog out to this bar that has TVs outside, drink beers, that's... A week in the life. Uh, Thursday and uh, Friday, you lift up your body. That's just like you're going for the beach muscles. That's a, that's a week in the life. Food I'm eating in the office is always ordering in. Um, yeah. Huh. 3,000 year old canoe found in Wisconsin. Well, I could talk about European, but the people who've lived in North American, huh? Conspiracy theory, iceberg. Oh, Batgirl. So, Big Cat Hank or PFT versus Billy Batgirl and Jake. Billy Batgirl and Jake would absolutely wreck them. Wreck them. I think Jake could take Hank. Yeah. So... Huh. 
Hm. Rymo, who's in the Discord live? Um. <laughs> yeah. Panama Pacific. Okay. Well, the rationale and Jake beating Hank, uh, Hank would get out of breath. And Jake has a stronger jaw. COVID and 5G. I actually, okay, so there's a, this guy brought up was a nuclear space attack on Hawaii. I actually believe this. So remember when Hawaii on, oh, it was my birthday. I remember this. Set January 13th, residents of the Hawaiian Islands received an emergency alert that warned of a ballistic missile instructed everyone to take cover. Residents near Honolulu, the expected ground zero of any nuclear attack, fled for their lives to more remote areas of Oha, expecting the worst. This is what appeared on people's cell phones at 8.07 a.m. local Hawaii time. Emergency alert. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Then after 38 minutes of sheer terror for many all over Hawaiian islands, residents were notified by the emergency alert system that this was all a false alarm. Someone had pressed the wrong button according to local state authorities. Residents were supposed to be reassured that the responsible individual would be reassigned. An inquiry has been launched by the Hawaii Governor David Iggy. Mainstream media coverage is exclusively focused on the Hawaii state authorities complaining the problem was one person pressing the wrong button. According to an official timeline of the events, U.S. Pacific Command notified Hawaii state authorities that there was no missile launch at 8.10 a.m. Local authorities subsequently attempted to inform the public via a number of means that the ballistic missile alert was a false alarm, but it was only at 8.45 a.m., 38 minutes after the initial alert, that a second emergency alert was sent over the public alert and warning system announcing the stake. Was the long delay between the warning and the warning retraction received by Hawaii residents simply the unprecedented foul-up of an emergency alert sent by state authorities or something else happening? My wife and I lived on the big island of Hawaii since 2004, and during our time here, there's been a steady number of emergency alerts issued for hurricanes, tsunamis, flash floods, and lava flows. Sirens regularly wail at the start of the month to test the emergency alert system for these kind of attacks, and more recently for a possible nuclear attack from North Korea. The regular occurrence of destructive events and their consequences in the regions have led an emergency alert system that is second to none when it comes to providing timely and accurate information to Hawaii residents in potentially life-threatening circumstances. We regularly receive emergency alert updates after the initial event described in an emergency alert, so the explanation that it took 38 minutes to issue an update to the initial false alarm is very hard to believe. The chances that the ballistic missile alert was a simple mistake by one person even further strains credulity. One writer points out how the system is designed to prevent this precise mistake. There's no button that could be accidentally hit. There are five fail-safe procedures in the Hawaiian emergency alert management system, the last being two key systems such as our present in the United States missile silos and U.S. nuclear missile submarines. Huh. Two different individuals to simultaneously positively trigger the alert. This is why alternative media reports of an intercepted nuclear missile attack need to be considered. I actually believe this. Yeah. Yeah. A missile 
launches are detected in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Hawaii. The launches originated from the same anomaly detected yesterday, January 12th. The missiles were immediately intercepted and destroyed. The anomaly was revealed to be a nuclear stealth submarine. The nuclear stealth submarine was located and swiftly destroyed after the attempted attack. On January 16th, another author came out saying the Hawaii event was an intercepted missile attack. There was a... So, state authority... What, what, who is this person? There was a missile fired by Israel, China, or the U.S. government is lying. What? What the fuck? How much time do we got left? Two hours in. This is the biggest... Missile launches were detected in the Pacific Ocean... So basically, they think that someone fired a missile at Hawaii and that, um, whoa. So they intercepted the missile using, so I actually think UFOs, uh, a lot of the UFOs they're seeing by Air Force uh, pilots are actually the US's nuclear defense system. And that's how they uh, defend the US from nuclear weapons is that nuclear weapons are launched uh, and these objects that fly at ways we can't even understand are actually the best way to destroy nukes because because they move at a way we can't understand. It's like super top level technology that we, like think about it, drones, all technology that's on the commercial market is 20 years what you know the government had 20 years ago so the drones we have now that fly like almost look like crazy ways they fly the government has 20 years ahead of that so if that's what these ufos that move in ways we can't even explain like hopefully they're not extraterrestrial and they're just protecting us from nuclear attacks and maybe this hawaiian uh this hawaiian um missile launch warning was these drones intercepting a missile that was launched at us and you know element 115 that whole bob lazar stuff um yeah wait huh so this one thinks extraterrestrial intervention is possible it's more likely than the highly advanced state of the usa F-run secret space program was all that was needed to intervene to thwart and the intended false flight attack. In either cases, the photos may explain how the incoming ballistic missile is shot down. Yeah. So I could totally see that that was a real notification. And they're just hiding it. Like the fact that you there was 36 minutes between a ballistic missile threat inbound. This is not a drill. Seek immediate shelter. 36 minutes it took for that to be like if you would hit it you just immediately respond but if they got rid of it and said oh there's no missile threat repeat false alarm jesus what a fuck up um but yeah a hundred percent totally think that hawaii notification was real and they're just covering it up totally agree with that Hmm. Lex Friedman? Did you? <laughs> uh, deep down on how PMT when Big Cat and PFT died. PMT will die as well. Um, I can't take on callers, which sucks. 
Uh, see, uh, Charles Manson, hmm. Chronicles, Clinton hit list. That's yeah. To be frank, I can't fucking stand the fact that PFT is making you do this, Billy. Just know most of the listeners of Macrodose are listening for you, Billy Football. We all make mistakes, and it was clear the footage was never really gone. But if I know one thing about Barcelona is that Billy Football never says no to a challenge. I know you jumped at the solo pod opportunity. Question. Stop being sweet and just embrace the fact that you said Ellinger is better than Zach Z. Willie. Okay. Huh. Psychological effects you think COVID had on college students. Sure as hell. Yeah. I mean... What's crazy is that I'm actually one of the only people in my college class that have a job that you have to show up for every day. Um, that being, uh, they basically go hung over to their computers every day and like fuck around and answer whatever emails and don't actually give a fuck about their job. So I don't know how that's going to happen with this recession coming. They're probably all going to get fired. Uh, Huh. Yeah, Billy wanted to know if the Oz interview footage was separate and could have been put out on its own. Yes, instead of making us all listen to what was repeatedly referred to as a must-watch by the other members of the podcast. They want us to hate you for not watching that specific portion, but we want the truth. Everything is up to then did not need to be watched. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh... Unibomber, yeah. The Unibomber, the Unibomber's coming back in the form of Liver King, low key. Hmm. I'm getting hungry. Haymarket riot, riots. Deep dive into the black Hebrew Israelites. That is almost an hour left. Spain pretending to have a disabled Spain pretending to have a disabled basketball team who pretend to be disabled when did this happen? Intellectually disabled Readers revealed after the Spanish sports magazine published their picture and Readers revealed that some of them didn't have any disabilities. Why would they do this? Why would they do this? They had no type of physical or mental handicap. They didn't even pass medical or psychological examinations. He said that the only test he had been asked to complete in his first training session was six press-ups, after which his blood pressure was taken, nor did he face an intelligence test when he was in Australia. The final team did compromise two players with IQ below 70 as required, with the other 10 poses mentally disabled. Jesus! They're given fake certificates. Whoa. Whoa. That's wild. Hmm. The siege of Vienna. Sorry about that. So we are now an hour and 56 minutes in. And 
I have an hour left. I'm surprised you guys all here are listening to this live. Thank you for being here. Um, huh. Let's let's read about let's read about 1688. The Siege of Vienna. The Siege of Vienna. The leader of the Hungarian Calvinists. So, expedition by the Ottomans against the Habsburg Holy Empire, Leopold I, that this resulted in their combined defeat by a combined force led by John III of Sobieski, Poland. The lifting of the siege marked the beginning of the end of Ottoman domination in Eastern Europe. Huh. The leader of the Hungarian Calvinists appealed to the Ottoman Grand Advisor, Kara Mustafa, to attack the Habsburg capital. With the tacit support, Vienna succeeded in capturing the Ottomans and to tunnel the inner walls. Huh. The Ottomans then appealed to Poland with a large subsidy. Although Sobieski, yo. By this point, Ottoman forces, oh man. Is the football on? Is the football on? Fuck, the football's on. I'm watching. I'm watching football. I'm sorry, guys. Is this Thursday night football, so I have to go on Prime. All right, one second. I'm going on Prime. Amazon.com live now. Let me watch this football. Oh, can I not? And make a tackle on. Fuck. I can watch. Can I watch it? Wait, wait, I'm going to turn off the... Yeah. Okay, watch the football while we're doing this. Um, Bill, you good? No, I'm not good. This is... <sighs> 80,000 troops of this relieving army formed along the top of the Vienna Hills, and on the morning of September 12th, Lorraine and Sobieski's forces attacked the Ottomans. By this point, Ottoman forces made serious inroads into the city defenses. Oh yeah, I just I just put on the Thursday night football audio randomly. All right. One hour left of podcasting. Oh, and my camera froze hours ago. Wonder why that happened. Why did it keep freezing? How are we doing there? When did when did my video freeze? Oh my god. This can never see the light of day. And we're back. Video wise. Oh man. This can never see the light of day.
Hmm. So, huh. That's a cool crusader. Okay. Oh. Oh, that. Oh, how did he drop that? How did he drop that? How did he drop that pick? What the fuck else is happening? Let's, who wants to watch some YouTube videos? Let's let's watch some more YouTube videos. <laughs> operation. What was that? What was that operation? There's a. Let's go back to Reddit. <laughs> Operation High Jump. Let's 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 see the conspiracy. Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost. My turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Ancient aliens. We make sit-down chicken this will be fun. stand-up chicken. This will be fun. With an hour to go, this will be fun to watch. Oh, sick. I know this this podcast has been way too Nazi heavy. But wait, is that is this true? Is this true? So they began relocating a massive amount of equipment and personnel to Antarctica, repressurizing these ancient. But is this true? And reoccupying them. This this is the thing. You can't just say that's true on the History Channel. 
one year after the end of World War II. The U.S. government launched its own large-scale mission to Antarctica. Operation High Jump deployed 4,700 troops, 13 ships, an aircraft carrier, and a number of seaplanes to Antarctica. Although the government denied it at the time, it would later become known that one of the operation's primary objectives was, quote, extending United States sovereignty over the largest practicable area of the Antarctic continent. But wait, wait, what? Base 211? Is this real? I don't think it's real. Th that's not real. <sighs> and we have 50 minutes to go. And the Panthers are up by three. I'm gonna need a beer after this. This is. <sighs> 50 more minutes left. This is one of the most pointless exercises I've ever done in my life. I can't imagine. So. Okay, um, uh, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Everybody, please, please, everyone take a peek at this. Keep your eyes closed. Mm -hmm. Keep your eyes closed. Mm -hmm. Yep. Open your eyes. Could have been a man or woman. I tell you, too. I think it's a guy. Am I right? Yes. If it was a woman, this guy would be more excited. He would have touched that healthy beard. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you guys all saw what I wrote down. Yeah, yeah. The guy you just thought of. What month is he born in? July. This guy's July. still. Oh my God. Get the fuck out of here! Get the fuck out of here! Uh, 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 old time. Is that Walt been there the whole time? Oh Walt's been there the whole time. Yeah. All right. Beginning, middle, end. Beginning, middle, end. Beginning, middle, end. July 1st to 31st. There we go. Think of the name, think of the name for a second. And I want you to do this. I want you to think of um, the letters. Like, like just like, Billy, B-I-L-L-Y, just think of the letters. And I want you to mix them up and just grab one of the letters somewhere in the middle, just an interesting letter. Just like, imagine that letter glowing, neon. You got a letter in your head? Yep. Why, did you think of a Y? Bro, I swear, there's no way. <laughs> hold up, hold up, hold up, look this way. Oh I think I got it, I got the date. Oh what the fuck's that have to do with the date? <laughs> Can everyone see? I'm sorry, I made this kind of crooked. Uh, close your eyes, please. Close your eyes. Yeah. Can everyone see? I'm sorry if I, I, I want to it. get oh, it tight. Is that yeah. very clear what I wrote? Yeah, yeah I see it. Um, I think it's an unusual name. Oh, do you guys have no sound? Uh, what's his birthday? July what? 23rd. Oh, my <laughs> God. Wait, sorry about that. It says no sound? Here we are, 49 minutes left. <sighs> I just hope no one's listening by now. I'm just fucking around on Twitter.
This guy just sent me a video. So, who's this guy? He thought he thought this was funny. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Good one. This isn't going out. No one would want to see any of this. What else is going on? 47 fucking minutes left. Oh, God. What else? Let's just go look at some YouTube videos. Uh... I started Jewel Dancewear in 2011 when I was a teenager. I was going through a lot of... In the fall of 1930, legendary British explorer Bertram Thomas set out on his most historic journey. He would attempt to be the first European to cross the daunting Rubal Kali, that inhospitable Arabian desert known intimidatingly to English speakers as the Indus Covering an area of some 250,000 square miles, stretching through Saudi Arabia, Oman, the United Arab Emirates and Yemen and the south of the Arabian Peninsula, the empty quarter is larger than the country of France, the largest sand desert in the world in terms of volume, with 800-foot-tall dunes blocking the path of would-be travelers. But if any European was going to be able to cross it, it was probably Bertram Thomas. Born in Somerset, England in 1832, Thomas had been sent to Mesopotamia during World War I, where he quickly took to the area and its people, and they to him, fighting alongside local forces and even becoming a high-ranking political advisor to the Sultan of Oman. He knew the area and what he was in for. He knew how to survive. So, on October 6, 1930, he set off from Salala on the coast of Oman. What the fuck's going on? 25 Bedouin guides to begin his historic attempt. As he later described, they struck northwards over the Kara Mountains, some 3,000 feet high, through frankincense groves, and thence into the great unknown steppe. For the next 59 days, Thomas was neither seen nor heard from. In fact, his own government was unaware of where he was or what he was doing, and would likely have expressly forbidden him from making the attempt if they had known about it, leaving Thomas to conduct the mission in secret. If things took a turn for the worse, there would be no rescue party. Finally, on February 5th of 1931, Thomas appeared in Doha, Qatar. Is this real history? And unharmed and with an incredible bounty taken from the desert in tow. 
What? On his way across, he had collected over 400 natural history specimens, uh -huh. including 21 species new to Western science. Yet, natural history specimens were not all Thomas had brought back from the desert. What did he bring no. back? His journey had seen him obtain something even more incredible. A story. Is this real? Told to him by his Bedouin guides, which had been passed down through generations. The story of an ancient lost city in the desert. Is this real? Beneath the sand. I don't know if this is real or not. It was a great city, our fathers have told us, that existed of old. A city rich in treasure, with gate gardens and a fort of red silver. It now lies buried beneath the sands. Some few days the thing is, is this, is this real? With no time to spare in his grueling attempt to cross the desert, Thomas had been unable to pursue the lost city. And though he intended to return to pick up the chase, he was never able. He did, however, record the story as it was presented to him in his seminal book, Arabia Felix, where it quickly caused a stir among European audiences. One man who became particularly enamored with the lost desert city was none other than T.E. Lawrence, more famously known as Lawrence of Arabia. Huh. To his friends, Lawrence wrote, I am convinced that the remains of an ancient Arab civilization are to be found in that desert. I have been told by the Arabs that the ruined castles of the great King Ad, son of Kinad, have been seen by wandering tribes in the region. There is always some substance in these Arab tales. Lawrence even made plans to go to the desert and search for the lost city, but never got the chance after he tragically died in a motorcycle accident in 1935. However, before he died, Lawrence gave the mysterious city a nickname which stuck. He dubbed it Atlantis of the Sands. Could this lost city really exist? An Atlantis of the Sands, just waiting to be discovered? Before we continue, we'd like to thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this video. ExpressVPN is the number one VPN provider fuck this. on the market, providing best security and top-notch. You're giving us fake. Oftentimes, when we do the research, Solomon, Moses, and the Egyptian Pharaoh, Noah, and the Flood, and so on, all in the holy books of all three traditions, but not the odd. Most famously, the tribe appears in the Quran when Muhammad warns unbelievers. Have you not considered how your Lord dealt with Ad, the tribe of Adam, who had lofty pillars, the likes of which were not produced in all the land? Many scholars have asked why the Ad of Iram would not have been mentioned elsewhere if they really did construct things, the likes of which were not produced in all the land. Did the Ad really exist? And if they did, then what happened to them? To this second question, the Quran provides an extraordinary answer. According to the Quran, the Ad of Iram were a tribe which existed on the Arabian Peninsula after the flood of Noah. There, they constructed a powerful kingdom, using their vast wealth and expertise to build monuments on every high place and build palaces as if they will live forever. They were not afraid to assert their power over their neighbors, viciously conquering many on the peninsula. 
as the Quran states about the Ad, and when you seize, you seize as tyrants. But this immense power led to arrogance, the people of Iran becoming idolatrous and wicked. That was Ad. They denied the signs of their Lord, disobeyed his messengers, and followed the command of every stubborn tyrant. What is this? Because of this, Allah sent the prophet Hud to warn the people of Iran to renounce their wicked ways. Yet, the people of Iran were unmoved. In an attempt to convince the Ad that Hud was speaking the truth, Allah then sent a terrible drought which afflicted Iran. Um, At its height, Hud pleaded with the Ad, but still, the they would not listen. Finally, the Ad saw a cloud formation approaching Iran and believed the rains had come at last, that they were saved. How wrong they were. Then when they saw the torment as a dense cloud approaching their valleys, they said happily, This is a cloud bringing us rain. But Hood replied, No, it is what you thought to hasten. A fierce wind All right, we have 39 minutes left. That, I don't even know what that was. I once heard, I, I thought that was going to be about like giants in the desert, but I actually heard a story of Minnesota giants. Weren't there? Yeah. I didn't think I had time for a bachelor's, but with WGU, I can move through an accredited business degree. Is that the whole grave site? Yeah. Right there, Sam. They make them nine feet. Could be a giant. The history that we were all taught growing up. What? My name is Scott Wolter, and I'm a forensic geologist. There's a hidden history in this country that nobody knows about. There are pyramids here, chambers, tombs, inscriptions. They're all over this country. We're going to investigate these artifacts and sites, and we're going to get to the truth. Sometimes history isn't what we've been told. Conventional history holds that the Vikings explored North America as far as Newfoundland in 1000 AD. For decades, people in my home state went further west, coming here to Minnesota. 
and not just any Vikings, giants. So this dude thinks he found giants. Hey, Roger, how you doing? Hey, Scott. Glad to meet you. Nice to finally meet you. Yeah. Thanks for uh, inviting me out here. Well, thanks for coming. Tell me about the situation. Well, I accidentally I was looking for gravel to backfill my, uh, my basement wall. Okay. Couldn't get to the gravel pit, you know, with the grain fields here. So I decided to find a place myself and dig for it. And I ran into bones, human bones. Calling authorities, they came in and uh, determined they were human bones, and they were uh, very old. Probably Native American, right? Two were Native, but there's something else interesting in this equation. We found one guy in there that his bones were huge, and they even commented that it was unusually large male individual. Didn't state archaeologists come out then? The uh, state archaeologists got involved. The dynamic was totally different. They were. Uh, they wanted to get this thing buried as fast as possible. So are these real? Big bones and, and a big, what you think is a big male. This is reminiscent of uh, giants. I have something I want to show you. It's, it's an article that talks about giants. And that was published in uh, the St. Paul paper in uh, 1888. And it says, a prehistoric race, Seven gigantic bodies exhumed while digging a well near Clearwater, Minnesota. A race of giants, and they talk about them being seven to eight feet tall. Could your guy be that big? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he's... Okay. Yeah, we're, we're in the same category. Hmm. We're in Minnesota. You're probably familiar with Viking Norse heritage and the idea that the Norse were here. Oh, there's no doubt. I've been studying the Norse for years and uh, what they do and the burial mound system. All this is Norse technology, and I told them that. Okay, Roger. So where is this mound? The mounds are just on the other side of the cornfield, right on the edge of the Coon Creek. Okay. Well, I'm anxious to go take a Let's look. Let's do it. Need your help. And here we are. That's where the big guy is buried. Right here. Okay. Right there. What is going on? About approximately right down here in this area. His head is located way up here. Dig him up. Right where that stone, that marker is. Roger, let's Why aren't they digging him up? Take that. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's about eight, eight to nine feet long. I'd say eight, six. That's a big guy. Why aren't they digging him up? Digging here, you find bones. The state representative for the Native Americans comes out, an anthropologist for the state comes out, yeah. and then what happened? They well, started digging? They, thought, they started doing the archaeological dig. Their eyes got big because this guy's, this guy's bones, I, I tore his feet off, and I tore the shoulders and ribcage of uh, two of these Native girls that were shoved up against his feet. The anthropologist said these are females, they, right? They were Native, female, they're little petite, fetal position, you know, their hands over their face. Okay. Did they say that this was a giant or they thought it could be? Or what, what exactly did they say? Very, very large male. Well out of the ordinary. There's a lot of these guys around. But this guy was covered up as fast as he could do. So it seemed bizarre to you. There was very something bizarre. not right about it. Very bizarre, yes. 
Well, based on everything that I've heard so far, what it sounds like to me is you're, you're suggesting there's a couple Wait, but why don't they just dig up the bones? Roger, you mentioned that the uh, the big guy was eight feet long. Yep. How do you know that? Well, after we covered everything up and quite a while later, curiosity got to me. I had a calling friend who works the coppers. The coppers? Well, uh, it's copper. He's talented with, uh, with coppers when you run over bodies, water, or whatever, they'll cross. Okay, rises. so this is witching, right? Divine rods? What you call witching. Mm -hmm. Wait, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. If they, if there was actually bones down there, did they ever dig up the bones? If they don't dig up bones. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. Huh. Huh. <sighs> well, football game sucks. What else on YouTube? <sighs> Let's do a Q&A. Okay, so just ask Twitter. 30 minutes left. Hopefully, we get this done. Let's see what some questions are. Is Zach Wilson the guy? Are birds real? What's your favorite animal? Light beer over vodka sodas. Who'd want a bear or two lions? Ah, oh, fuck, I think a bear. No, two lions, two lions. Favorite animal is a polar bear. Oh, man. Could an offense with two QBs work? On the field at once. Yes. Check out the Princeton Tigers two quarterback system. What's the main difference between blacking out from alcohol versus blacking out while dominating Jose Canseco in the ring? Uh, the main difference between blacking out from alcohol, uh, uh, worse motor skills versus superior motor skills. Uh, 
Polar bear, Kodiak, grizzly, Siberian tiger, giraffe. Wait. If you had one redo button, that wouldn't mess up the futures we know. Biggest regret in life if you had one redo button. Uh, walking to the barstool offices when I was 18. Just kidding. Um... Uh, if you could replace all the grass in the world with something else, what would it be and why? Moss. Better for the environment. Would the world be a better place if everyone was prescribed Adderall? No. See Nazi Germany. Thirty minutes of Jets talk. Why didn't Batgirl have to do Soggy Sorrows? Great question. on e-line sasquatch real or fake real at one point why box lacks is better than field yeah box across is way better case <laughs> really if you could be any animal polar bear how long could you survive in the wild I'd like to think forever. Build. If I, I need some tools though. Clue Haywood, shout Clue Haywood. Polar bear. Finoplex. What is Finoplex? Whoa. Finoplex. Oh, it's just straight up tremblone acetate. Jesus Christ. You can straight up buy this. Jesus Christ. This is Fenoplex. This is what bodybuilders inject themselves and it's supposed to be for, hef for heifers fed in confinement for slaughter. It's supposed to make them gain weight. The last 
You're not using feel calves. Yeah, get some big. That's probably so bad for you, for these guys who do it. Finiplex for humans. <laughs> oh my god. and dosage for cattle versus humans. More plates, more dates. We are not. We aren't cows. The drug. Oh my god. It's a staple. Jesus Christ. It is ridiculous that like these guys are using. Does trenblone cause Alzheimer's? Probably. Huh. Jesus Christ. Guys are doing trend, giving themselves freaking. If you can give any supplement to any animal without ethical consequences, what would it be? Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, it was good. Twenty-two minutes left. <laughs> this is whoa. This is the worst thing ever. I've been talking for two hours and 40 minutes straight. This is literally, oh wait, no, this is, <laughs> this is good. This is good. This is good. Dude, some of these are ridiculous. In the last two minutes of this three hour podcast, I am now declaring that in one week I will do an amazing three-hour three podcast made up of all these things I th the way I want. 
guests, Collins. Yeah, no, this is gonna be sick. This is this, the the podcast I'm gonna plan for next week. Guest Collins videos, tons time for prep. It's coming out out next Saturday and will be recorded on Friday. It will be epic. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is because I have Yeah, that's what we're doing. 16 seconds left. Oh, we're done. We're done. Yep. We're done.